0: Well, good afternoon. Um, I get the privilege of reading our Bible passage for today, so could I invite you to stand with me? This is Luke chapter 2, verse 1 to 12. In those days, Caesar Augustus issued a decree that a census should be taken of the entire Roman world. This was the first census that took place while Quirinius was governor of Syria, and everyone went to their own town to register. Today in the town of David, a Saviour has been born to you. He is the Messiah, the Lord. This will be a sign to you. You will find a baby wrapped in cloths and lying in a manger. This is the word of the Lord. All right, would you join me in welcoming and honouring Pastor Alex?
1: Awesome. How's everyone doing this afternoon? You might notice that my forehead is glossy, and you might be thinking, Alex looks hot, but I assure you, it's just my holiness radiating forth, shining light, that was funnier in my mind. That's fine. No worries. Great reception in the front row. I'll work with that with the rest of us. Um, It's hot this afternoon, isn't it? Yes. And I just wanted to say we could do anything with our afternoon, but yet you've chosen to be here with God's people in this gathering. I want to say in the next two hours, we will smell differently by the time we finish. But hopefully you won't feel alone, that you're next to people in whose midst you can know and be known, maybe share a bit of your story. And here's the bottom line, we would love to know you if you're new here. A special warm welcome if that's you. We believe that behind every face is a story and every story is important to God. And so if you've got time after the service, after our town hall meeting, please just stick around and share life with us. We'd love to get to know you. Um, as I mentioned, we've got a town hall after this, uh, this afternoon service, so if you, if you call New Life Brisbane home, and more specifically, if you're a member here, we're taking the budget that has been put together by staff, uh, vetted by elders, and approved by council, and we're just creating space in light of our AGM on Wednesday night, just space for the members of New Life Brisbane just to ask questions, show some curiosity, and then to get some clarity on perhaps why... Uh, some of the decisions we made are the decisions that we made for next year's budget and the beauty of that space is that it's a family moment where we get to talk about what's happening next year and so on one level there might be some of us in the rows that think yes numbers I'm super excited to talk budget but make no mistake we're actually talking about what our heart is when we look to next year and what a wonderful opportunity we've got that we've got budget to think strategically through what next year looks like amen wonderful time hope you'll stick around for it. Last little note from me is um, I just want to honour the fact that um, I I truly believe as the pastor, that church, it's not for the select elite few people who as staff put up their hand and say, I'm going to become a professional Christian. That church happens and exists because the whole people of God put up their hand, make themselves available and say, actually, I want to be part of God's mission. Um, And so I just want to take a moment just to honour a staff member, but then too, I want to just celebrate the fact that we've got volunteers here this afternoon. So I wanna honor the fact that Aaron and Dace are back from their honeymoon. Can we just welcome them home? We missed you and we're so glad you're back. Uh, But then too, Aaron was up here, not just as one staff member, but as a team of people who are volunteering their time from 1 p.m. this afternoon. So if you think you're gonna sweat here this afternoon at New Life Brisbane, man, they are paces ahead of you. And I just wanna honor our volunteer team. So can we thank the worship team, the host team? And all the volunteers up with Kids Life that are happening there right now. Can we pray together before we jump into the scriptures? Let's pray. Jesus, we echo the lyrics of that song and we just say we're here for you. Lord, we carry so much into this building every week. The difficulty of our work week, the burdens of relationship, the heat of the summer sun. And Jesus, I just pray that you would wash all that away right now as we sit under your word. Friends, just in this moment, if you call yourself a Christian, I just encourage you in the quiet of your own heart just to say to Jesus, we're here for you. I'm here for you, Lord. And Father, because we're here for you, we want to hear from you. And so we ask that as your scripture goes forward and we sit under the weight of your word, would you speak to us by your spirit? For we ask it in your name, Jesus. And all of God's people said, amen, amen. I love that holidays are coming up. Anyone super excited about holidays coming up? Yes, a couple of hands. Some of you, the rest of you are just lying because holidays, man, they're a vibe. I was doing some research this week And uh, you might notice that numbers start to contract around this time of year for us as a church at New Life Brisbane, and it's because people clearly just don't love Brisbane City. They go holiday basically everywhere else on the southeast Queensland coast, but uh, numbers do start to contract, so it might feel more and more lonely, but that's fine, it's just more intimate conversation gets to happen over dinner at the mediocre burger place. I um, I was doing some research this week thinking about holidays because I've realised in my adulthood that to have a holiday in the calendar, it does something to my heart as I go about my year. Does anyone feel this? Yep, if you've worked any ounce of time in the sort of full professional life, just calling myself a professional there, I will take that liberty, you'll know that having holidays in the calendar actually does something to you. I wanted to share some interesting facts about holidays for us. Um, Taking holidays, they have several effects on our lives. They reduce stress. Big amen to that. It can extend your life. Don't ask me where I got these, these facts, but they're real. Trust me. I think it was done by Booking.com. It's a very, very reputable source, right? They reduce stress, extend your life, they improve your mood, gives you a better social life. Get this? It, it can reduce risk of heart disease. Don't ask me how. I see someone nodding, and I know this person... Actually, I won't unpack their, their workplace. Um, greater workplace productivity. But here's the really cool thing. Just having a holiday planned can increase, like in the future, just generally speaking, it can increase your happiness for up to eight weeks. Two kinds of people in the room right now. One person is saying, that's awesome. I'm going to have a holiday. And the other person, the brain, is saying, where's he getting these facts? I won't tell you. But I think it's true, isn't it? When we've got something on the horizon to look forward to, it changes the way we inhabit the present And when we don't have something on the horizon to look forward to, it starts to do all these damaging things to us. And I think that's true not just of holidays for humans in the material world, I think it's true for humans that are spiritual beings thinking about eternity. I think it's true of the way we think about hope. And in the Christian story, here's a really cool thing. There's the invitation to have something on the horizon in the future, that isn't just a hope for then, but actually starts to work its way backward to change the way you live in the present. It's called hope. Behind me um, on the banners, you'll see four words, hope, peace, love, and joy. And this Sunday, we're kicking off our new teaching series as we step into Advent. And Advent comes from a Latin term, Adventus, which simply means coming, coming. And it's this historical Christian tradition where we walk through the story of Jesus as we await his coming again. But historically speaking, we do two things when we step into Advent. We look back to the story of Jesus, giving thanks and gratitude for what he's done on our behalf, God becoming flesh, living the life we should have, dying the death we deserved so we might be reconciled to him, and then looking forward to his second coming. That as we step into this Christmas season, our imaginations wouldn't be marked by consumer culture where we think about the materials we need to buy, wouldn't be marked of of the anxiety of getting ready for the Christmas family get-together, which is a debate every year in every family. Do we go to mum and dad's place on Christmas Day or Boxing Day? Do we go to your family's place, you know, this year or next year? Big debate happens every year. That our our imaginations wouldn't be marked by... um, Uh, some of the pain we experience at Christmas because maybe we don't have the families that all the other people around us seem to have to be able to share it with, but that this year, every year, this contour of the calendar, this moment in time for Christians would be a time where we look at the hope, the joy, the peace, and the love. Because here's the claim of Advent as we step into it. It's that Christians know something about love because of Jesus, that if we didn't have Jesus, we wouldn't know about love. Right? Like, are you with me, church? Christians know something about joy because of Jesus, that if Jesus never rocked up, we wouldn't know about joy. Because of Jesus, Christians know something about peace on the inside of us, that without Jesus, we'd have no idea about. We'd have a a subpar definition of peace if we don't no, Jesus, and today we're looking at the fact that we know something about hope as Christians because of Jesus, that if Jesus never came, we wouldn't know about at all. See, hope, I said it a few weeks ago when I preached on hope, and if you're thinking Alex is going to preach the same hope message, think again, you know, there's more things in the back pocket than, but still, it's really hard to speak to the same topic multiple times in the same term, but here's the thing I said about hope a few weeks ago, and we can't miss this definition, hope is something in the future that affects the present. It says there's something coming on the horizon that I can bank my bottom dollar on, that I can trust. It's something in the future that affects the present. But it's also something from without that comes to within. It's not something that we muster up, something we fabricate or manufacture or sort of do the dirty on. It's something that comes from without and enters in. But here's the cool part. Once it's on the inside, once it's internal, there's nothing that the external can do to take it away from you. And Christians, we have the unique privilege, the unique pleasure of being people of hope. Do you know that today? We are people of hope. Now, that's a big term, and I want to unpack three ways through this text uh, that that word hope can be inflected or changed or three panels of thought to sort of put our minds across this afternoon. Does that sound okay? Let's do that together. The first point is this, that the hope Christians have is historical, not mythical, I don't know if you know this. This blew my mind when I was thinking about it, not just this week, but in years gone by. See, there's this one big objection to Christianity that people will raise all the time, and it's that no one's done a reality check on the claim of Jesus. Actually, a few years ago, um, Richard Dawkins, uh, he's sort of the famed atheist who led what you might call the four horsemen of the atheistic apocalypse. He wrote a book called The God Delusion. And In that book, he sort of mistakenly claimed that if you were a serious historian, you could sort of mount the case that Jesus was never a, a real historical figure. And when he wrote this, all the historians around the world, both Christian and atheist, agnostic, people who didn't have any sort of religious affiliation, they were like, this guy is ridiculous. This can't be actually the case because they're aware of all the different sources that give testimony to the life of Jesus, that give Christians in this moment confidence about the story we believe. But here's the big critique. It's, it's mythical, not historical. But when you read the Gospels, there is no impression you can get that they're writing myth or narrative or story. Luke is famous for writing what you might call history. And we get a sense of it just in this text here. Let me read verses 1 to 2 of this passage. Verse 1, Luke chapter 2, says this, in those days, Caesar Augustus, Decree that a census should be taken of the entire Roman world. This was the first census that took place while Corinius was governor of Syria. I was going to keep reading, but that's actually where it stops, so there you go. Happens all the time. And you think, oh, big what? What's the big deal about that particular passage? Well, this is one of a number of passages in Luke's gospel where he zooms out and tries to find markers within the culture of the day to help readers understand the timing, the location, and therefore the truth of the events. I'll give you another example. You open up chapter 1 of Luke's gospel, Luke 1, verses 1 to 3, and it says this. Many have undertaken to draw up an account of the things that have been fulfilled among us, just as they were handed down to us by those who from the first were eyewitnesses and servants of the word. With this in mind, since I myself have carefully investigated everything from the beginning, I too decided to write an orderly account for you so that you may know the certainty of the things you've been taught. Let me give you one more example before we move on and fall asleep. Let me read chapter 3, verses 1 and onwards. Note all the ways that Luke tries to locate the imagination of the reader in this historical account in his gospel. He says this, In the 15th year of the reign of Tiberius Caesar, Roman emperor, when Pontius Pilate was governor of Judea, local accountability, Herod of Tetrarch of Galilee, More local accountability. His brother Philip, tetrarch of Eretria and Trachonitis, and Lysanias, tetrarch of Abilene. Awesome, got the Romans ticked off. During the high priesthood of Annas and Caiaphas, the word of God came to John, son of Zechariah, in the wilderness. And then he announces the arrival of Jesus on the scene. Now we can track through archeology, span through inscriptions on graves and coins, and through other non-Christian sources, historians from the first century, things that allow us to date these people and thereby track the exact testimony that Luke is talking about. Why do I say all this? Like big whoop. Couple of big words in there, Alex, you trying to flex? No. I'm just trying to make the case that when you read this, you're not reading myth or fable. Let me read you some myth or fable. Uh, I want you to guess what this is from. It's a quote from a novel. And if you know what the novel is, just shout it out, please. In a hole in the ground, there lived a hobbit. (laughs) First line of what book? The Hobbit. Great. Uh, Second, we were talking about this one at Small Group the other week. Um, As Gregor Samsa awoke one morning from uneasy dreams, he found himself transformed in his bed into a a monstrous vermin. What book? The Metamorphosis. All the bookworms right now are just frothing. But notice the difference. Let it go. <laughs> Notice the difference. The Gospels don't start with, in a galaxy far, far away, or once upon a time. They actually take real people in real historical situations with real facts and figures that we can verify and corroborate and look around. And what's the takeaway? The takeaway is that they're claiming to write history. So what's the, what's the application point for this? Why do I bother talking saying it's more history than myth? Well, it's this. Maybe you're here today and you're a thinker and you believe the lie from the famous atheists or you've been sold this sense that Christianity can't be verified, that the truth of the Christian story, there's no sort of reality check on it, and I'd just say, man, that's just not how Christianity began. And that if you're a thinking person and you're like, look, I'd love to be in a relationship with God, that would make me so happy, this idea that there's meaning and joy and peace and hope and love, that'd be, that'd be wonderful, but man, if only it were true. The Gospel writers aren't claiming to write story or myth, they're claiming to describe and report reality. Or as one Australian historian put it, he said, what we're reading when we read the Gospels, it's not, it's not storytelling from Middle Earth, it's historical reporting from the Middle East. And that might sound mundane and boring, but here's the cool thing, it means if you're a Christian you don't need to check your brain out at the door of the church when you come each week. That part of being in relationship with God means using our minds to ask questions, offer curiosity, and reason with him about the story we've received. You don't need to be silly to be a Christian. Now, that's gonna be good news for a lot of us here because we are an educated, cerebral, urban city center context. And there are gonna be people, whether in this room or in your friendship circles or in your spheres of influence, who are asking hard questions about Christianity. But here's the good news. That hope... It's not pie in the sky when you die. It's not wishful thinking about something you can't verify. It's grounded in flesh and blood, history. And so you can be confident. You can be confident when you believe the story yourself. You can be confident when you share it with a friend. It's history, not mythology. Number two, let's jump on through here. Number two is that it's humbling before it's exalting. And when I gave that title and as I was preparing, I just felt like the Lord was like, Alex, It's humbling before it's exalting. Are you listening to me? It's humbling before it's exalting. What do I mean? Let me read verses 8 to 11. And there were shepherds living out in the fields nearby, keeping watch over their flocks at night. An angel of the Lord appeared to them, and the glory of the Lord shone around them, and they were terrified. But the angel said to them, Don't be afraid. I bring you good news that will cause great joy for all people. Today in the town of David, a saviour has been born. He is the Messiah, the Lord. Now, a really interesting fact about the story we're reading right now is that shepherds in that context, they're sort of like the lowly of society. Uh, If you you wanted to contribute to society, you you plied a trade. Uh, But if you wanted to be a reject in society's eyes, be sort of part of the lower class and be at, at risk of rejection in that society, you'd become a shepherd. Shepherds, they spent all their time out in the fields. People thought of them as weird because they'd like, you know, I was going to use the word introverts, but they would associate introverts with this negative character I'm describing. But they'd like introvert themselves away from society and basically they'd become smelly humans. Why? Well, because a good sheep smells like it's, a good shepherd smells like their sheep. And they'd spend time with their sheep. And so to all the people in townships or city centres, shepherds were the most strange of character. And so when the angels appear to them and say, hey, don't be afraid, we're gonna send you to a township. Within that township, you're gonna to meet a family. And they're like, hey, don't be afraid. As they're invited to meet this family and go into this township, of course they're afraid. What are they afraid of? They're afraid of being rejected. Because there's no guarantee that a shepherd would be shown hospitality within the cultural context of the day. Now, just as an aside, like there's multiple times when angels rock up in the Bible and they're like, hey, don't be afraid. And you just wonder whether, like, God could change the way angels appear. Like, you know, they could come more gently and just, like, be a bit more chill. But they don't do that. So every time they're like, hey, don't be afraid. And it's just like, you could change that, Lord. But he doesn't. So we move on. But they rock up. Don't be afraid. They are afraid because they're feared being rejected. So that, but they obey. And they go to this township called Bethlehem. And they try and find this family. And the story, which we didn't read before, they actually meet the baby in the manger. But here's what this makes them. It makes them completely vulnerable to the hospitality of Mary and Jesus. I don't know if you see that in the story. They're completely vulnerable to the hospitality of Mary and Jesus because they, in their lowly status of the day, they don't bring with them anything that would grant them access. They don't walk into the door with their resume and say, hey, look, I'm actually a person of great repute. I've got good pedigree in my family lineage, let me in. They walk in, they're smelly, they smell like the animals that would have been in the stables next to the house. They've got nothing that they can walk in and sort of like earn entrance into that space to receive the good news of great joy for all people. And I think this is where we get a hint in the Christmas story, that Christian hope, it's, it's, firstly, exult, it's firstly humbling before it's exalting. That the shepherds' model for us are, are being brought low, are being made humble, which is the perfect posture with which to meet the King Jesus. Uh, A few years ago, actually decades ago, C.S. Lewis, he wrote the Chronicles of Narnia, and in that story, Aslan comes along and he's chatting with some humans, and he describes for them what it's like to be a human. He said these words, it'll be on the screen behind me. He said to them, you come of the Lord Adam and the Lady Eve, and that is both honor enough to erect the head of the poorest beggar, and shame enough to bow the shoulders of the greatest emperor. Right. Now, I don't know about you, but I think Christians are really good at forgetting the humble state with which we began our relationship with God. Does anyone feel that? We meet God by grace, and then we say, Awesome, I've met Jesus, I'm in relationship with Him. But then we meet other Christians, and all these Christians, they've got this like biblical knowledge. And for some reason, we've got someone in our small group who's recently a Christian, and this keeps coming up for them, and it's just this fascinating thing to watch. For some reason, we think the next best step for me is to master God knowledge. I want to tick the God knowledge off. I want to know things like the people in my small group know about God. And so then grace moves from this experience that we have by virtue of coming humbly to God to now being something we can articulate. You know what I mean? And when you can articulate it, you can master it. And so we become people who are really good at talking about God, but actually, from the inside out, maybe lose that sort of edge of humility that we had as sort of the key requirement in coming into the kingdom of God. And I just say, man, we've got selective memory when we, when we try and think back of the thing that's key for the virtues we have as Christians. And I just say, man, God wants to humble us always before he exalts us. He always wants us to experience the life of the shepherd coming close, not because we've earned it, not because we've got a resume, but because he's gracious. That we don't walk in with our list of to-dos ticked off when we come into the presence of God, but actually we come humbly to meet him. When I was meditating on this, um, it really hit me because I think I can be really good at being a professional Christian. I'm going to wipe my forehead with this uh, Pentecostal preacher. Listeners will call me T.D. Jakes in a moment. And um, I was chatting with a friend this week. I didn't have this illustration in here, but um, someone who, they're sort of mid-30s and we're talking about baptism. And, um, and they said, oh, I think I've missed the boat on baptism. I should have done it when I was younger but an authority figure told me not to. And now it's just been too long. And the idea of coming out to my church and getting baptized within my church, it just feels really embarrassing, like so late in life, like you miss the boat on this like key Christian practice. And I remember just saying, what a wonderful opportunity for you not to get so easily embarrassed and just say, hey, I've I've missed this key thing. Some of you uh, understand the illustration, others of you have a puzzled look on your face, which is fine. Let me just talk from my own sense. I would much rather be a leader who's just honest about where they fail. Does that mean God approves or disapproves? Who knows? I think one of the things that holds us back from genuine Christian community is humility. Saving face, presenting a more curated professional version of ourselves. So we come to church and someone asks, How are you going? And you say, Good. And that's the end of the conversation. So you can sit in your pew and just look at the service and walk away and you're not known, not loved, not met. But if we realize that actually we come into the kingdom humbled, and therefore it's really hard for us to get embarrassed because we're so honest about our sin, our shortcoming, our failure, of our fact that we need help every second day, then man, the level of community we'd experience, the level of life we'd share, and also too, the lack of embarrassment we'd feel when we just are just honest about who we are and especially who we're not. And so I think one of the beauties of the Christian hope is that it's humbling before it's exalting because of which you don't need to be embarrassed if you fail. Actually, it's probably a key prerequisite for the kingdom of God. You enter through humility. You come not by being exalted, but exalted after that humility. So second, it's humbling before it's exalting. And lastly, it's for all and not just for some. I wonder if before I jump into this next point, I can just invite us, maybe just close your eyes. I'll do it with you. And I want you to think of the person in your world who doesn't know Jesus. Maybe it's a name, family member, a colleague. And here's what I want to say. I want to say it's, it's for them. That hope is for them. They can have hope too. Feel free to come back with me. Hold them in your mind's eye just as we finish our time together now. The interesting thing about this story is that it's got a parallel in Matthew's gospel. Four gospels, four biographies of Jesus. The first three look very similar. The last one's very different, all of which tell the story of Jesus in a way that causes us to consider whether he truly is God. But in the first gospel, Matthew, third gospel, Luke, both of them tell stories about three humans coming to meet the newborn baby Jesus. In this story, it's the humble shepherd, the outcast, the reject, the socially dislocated kind of person. But in Matthew's Gospel, really beautiful. It says three Magi from the East were invited by an angel to come and meet this newborn baby Jesus. Now the cool thing about the Magi in Matthew's Gospel, and we know this from history, and we know this too because it sort of is suggested with the gifts that they bring, they're probably like these scholarly, kingly figures from the East bearing incredibly expensive gifts gold, frankincense, and myrrh. Now, the money you needed in those days to have these gifts in your back pocket so you could give them at will (laughs) to a random figure is staggering. And so they're scholarly, highly educated, regal, of royalty, and they come. And it says they come to worship. What I find staggering about this is you've got Socially dislocated, reject, lowly, outcast, shepherd, invited to come. And then on the other end of the spectrum, you've got this of high pedigree, royalty, rich, highly educated, invited to come. And I think it tells us something about the heart of God, which is this, that Christianity, that hope, that good news... Let me read it for us. It's the words of the angel. Verses 8 to 11. Let me zoom in on the words of the angel in verse 11. It'll be on the screens, actually. It says, I will bring good news of great joy for all people. Good news of great joy for all people. Good news. Great joy for all people. I'm so thankful God's not like me. I was doing some study recently and I found out that there's two mindsets with which you can live your life, an abundance mindset or a scarcity mindset. Has anyone heard that language before? A scarcity mindset says that there's a finite amount of resource because of which you can only give it to a certain group of people Probably those who qualify most for it, you know maybe they've demonstrated some kind of like pedigree or that kind of thing, which means other people need to miss out. Now I've got a scarcity mindset whenever food is served at like a party. It's only a finite amount of food. Who's going to get it? The quickest guy to the table. I run. I've got a scarcity mindset when it comes to time. I've got a finite amount of time. Who's going to get it? Probably a person who's like, for whom it's an investment of my time, not just a use or spend of my time. You know, I'm going to get rewards on it. Just being honest. I've got a finite amount of energy. I think an occupational hazard of being a pastor is you become an introvert. Maybe not because you answer that on the Myers-Briggs test, but you just, you look for more time to process and reflect and time with God and who's going to get my time? What about for you? What are the resources you've got? How do you think through who gets them? Scarcity mindset. Here's the cool thing about God. God's got an abundance mindset. The Bible describes God as rich in mercy. What an irresponsible way to live your life. Rich in mercy. An abundance of mercy. And you wonder, can I ever plumb the depths of God's mercy? No. Can I ever reach the limits of God's grace? No. Why? He's rich in it. He's the owner of it. He's got an abundance mindset. So when he thinks through, who can he give his love and mercy to? He's got no criteria whereby some people make themselves higher up the hierarchy of priority. None. That's not the way of Jesus. That's not the God of the gospel. The God of the gospel is the one who says, I have come for all. Good news of great joy for all people. So here's two questions. Have you disqualified yourself from that love and that hope and that joy and that peace? And have you disqualified someone else on their behalf? Because God doesn't and He wouldn't. Let me just share one thought as we finish our time. All of us have someone in our world, all of us, that we think, oh, I just can't ever see them becoming a Christian. You know that person? It's probably a family member. And you just think, oh, like, they're just too worried about random stuff. Like when we get together for Christmas time, they're talking about their like Ford Mustang in the garage and I'm not a car person. And so like, how could they ever be concerned about like these big lofty hope, joy, peace, love kind of things? And so you say they know for them and you never invite them in the same way that the Magi and the Shepherds were invited to come to come and see the same God you've seen. And I would just say God doesn't say people's no for them. He's come for all. And so here's the challenge of this last point. Who's that person? And how could you use perhaps this Christmas time to invite them to come, to receive, to let the love that God has for all meet them in their heart where they're at. And then there's those of us in the room right now and we've come to church And maybe you've had a tough year. And the love of God and the joy of Jesus and the offer of the kingdom, it just feels like this nice idea that melted your heart years ago, but surely God still can't love. And I just repeat the words of the angel to you. Good news. Great joy for all people. Who, me, Alex? Yeah, you. Don't disqualify yourself. God's not. It's history, not mythology. It's for all, not just for some. And I've definitely forgotten my second point it's humbling it's exulting, can i invite us to stand friends when i was praying about how we might land this this afternoon I think there's two really obvious things to do. One is just to invite you in the room, if you don't know this hope, just to receive it for the first time. I'm going to keep that simple and just say, man, if this is the first time you've heard the story and you long to step in relationship with God through Jesus, it's available to you right now. If you long to have that hope on the horizon which challenges your present, it's available to you right now. If you long to be part of that all that God makes His love available to, it's available to you right now. And so in a moment, we're going to pray. And as we pray, I just invite every one in the room to close their eyes, bow their heads, and we're gonna pray a really simple prayer. God, sorry that I live my life apart from you. Thank you for what you've done in Jesus in coming to save me. Please, save me from myself and help me follow you. And so if that's you, I just invite you, maybe raise your hand, signifying to me and the team, but also to yourself that this is something you wanna respond to right now. You wouldn't call yourself a Christian, but today you've heard a message of hope That could change everything for you. And you say, yeah, I want to respond to that. So if that's you, just go on and raise your hand right now, nice and high. And we do this every single week, so I'm not going to feel bad if it's no one this week. That's totally fine with me. We're going to do it every single week, not just Christmas time, but every other week in the year because we believe God wants to meet individuals in this particular moment. So one more moment, just raise your hand nice and high if that's you. You'd love to respond to Jesus in this moment. Say yes to a relationship with Him. Wonderful. Well, the good news about this moment is that regardless of who put their hand up or not, we all get to pray the same prayer. So whether in the quiet of your own heart or with voices in unison, can I invite you to pray these words after me, all everyone in the church? Let's pray together. Jesus, sorry for living my life separate from you. Thank you for coming to save me. please come into my life and help me follow you. Be my Lord and my Saviour and my King. For it's in Jesus' name I pray. Amen. Amen. Friends, in a moment, we're going to move into worship together. And we're going to sing an old school song together, which I'm really excited about. It's here I am to worship. Yeah, the golden oldies, we're ripping it out together. But I wonder if we could just posture ourselves. Maybe you want to come down the front. There's some space. Maybe you want to kneel. Maybe you want to get out of the pews. If you'd like prayer, um, I actually love it if I haven't teed this up, but if there's a few people around to pray, that'd be wonderful. Maybe the Drakes, if you're available, that'd be such a blessing. They'll be down here away from the speaker so they don't have to yell in your ear as they pray for you. Just wanna create space right now. And as we do that, why don't you just posture your heart? So Maybe you wanna close your eyes. Maybe you wanna lift your hands above your head in an act of surrender. Maybe you wanna lift your hands out in front of you and just say, God, I'm here. As I was praying earlier today, the, the word despair came to my mind. And I think as we're gathering right now, I think there's people in our midst who feel despairing. That word could trigger a whole host of things in our minds, but I'm going to leave it broad because it's just the word that God gave me. If you've come to church this afternoon feeling despairing, like there's no hope, it might be a situation you're walking through, a relationship, a work circumstance, or doubt. First, I just invite you to raise your hand. Love to pray with you. Love to pray for you. Thank you for raising that hand. Is there anyone else in the room this afternoon who just despair would characterize something of the week that they've had? Thank you. Thank you. Anyone else? Thank you? Anyone else? Thank you. And as we pray, I just want to just ask that the Spirit fills us. Lord, thank you that you meet us where we're at. You don't ask us to change. You're all-knowing, all-seeing, and so the week that we've had, you're so aware of. You don't ask us to buck up our Christian courage and change our face before we experience your presence. You're here, available to us now. And Father, I just pray for those that have lifted their hands and ask that you would download your hope into their hearts, that they'd walk away from this moment with a sense of confidence, not that tomorrow might change, but that ultimately everything will be okay in the end, that you work out all things together for good for those who love you and who are called according to your purposes. I pray for those who've lifted their hands, Lord. Father, for all of us who just walk around with this sense of despair in our hearts, this hopelessness about our situation, I ask, would you fill us by your spirit? And I just love, Lord, the prophetic image of the rain washing over this church right now. Would that be true of our hearts and your spirit too? We just say as a community, Lord, we're here for you. We're here to worship you. We're here to love on you and minister to you with our song. And so as we do that, God, would you inhabit our praises? For it's in Jesus' name that we pray let